You are now listening to the July 1st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screwtape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screwtape Letters. Hello, I am Terry Park, the moderator for a new program, A Christian Who Reads Books. The goal is to share our thoughts on a few selected books that we have read and have illuminated our experiences of faith. There will be several other hosts who take turns sharing their insights on the books they have read, and we will discuss various topics together. To begin, I would like to share my thoughts on a book called The Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis, who is rightly regarded as one of the leading Christian apologetics. Before discussing the book, I would like to offer a brief introduction to the author. Clive Staple Lewis, known as C.S. Lewis, was born in 1898 and died in 1963. He is widely regarded as one of the greatest intellectuals of the 20th century and one of the most influential authors of all time. He was a professor of English literature at Oxford University until 1954, and he was then elected to be the chair of Department of Medieval and Renaissance Literature at Cambridge University until his retirement. He authored over 30 books and is loved by the readers of all ages across the world. Thousands of readers are discovering his books every year. His most famous work include Mere Christianity, Out of the Silent Planet, The Great Divorce, The Screwtape Letters, and The Chronicles of Narnia. This last book sequence has sold over 100 million copies worldwide and has been adapted into three films, not only for adults, but also for children. The book, The Screwtape Letters, that I have chosen to share has sold millions of copies worldwide since its publication in 1942 and is recognized as a landmark in the history of Christian theology. This masterpiece of satire is told from the perspective of Screwtape, a devil in a high position among Satan's subordinates. The book unfolds through the letters of Screwtape, portraying human life and flaws in subtle and iconic ways. Christians address God as our Father in Heaven, but Screwtape addresses Satan as our Father below. The highly comical, sharp, and original book, The Screwtape Letters, are composed of the letters exchanged between the worldly devil Screwtape and his nephew Wormwood. The patient mentioned in the letter refers to each person that a devil is attached to. Additionally, the enemy that appears in the book refers to Jesus Christ. That is from the devil's perspective. It's interesting, isn't it? When you think about it, it makes sense. For us, the enemy is the devil. But from the devil's perspective, the enemy is Jesus Christ. If you were to ask people, what is the truth? What is the truth you believe in? You are likely to get different answers. Some might give a definition from the dictionary. Others might talk about its attributes. And others might talk about the unchanging laws of nature. For example, we will all inevitably die, or that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But nowadays, most young people might say something like this. The truth? Meh. What's so important about it? They might think that it's not their concern and not a problem worth discussing. In a society that is about to be hit by the development of artificial intelligence, 
software known as ChatGPT and other similar algorithms, the boundary between truth and falsehood is becoming eroded. What we know about the nature involving flora and fauna and about the values and concepts in our societies would inevitably take on the tone of relativism. However, we must remember that truth is not a relative concept. I will tell you more about it later. Anyway, even if we set aside the imminent arrival of AI algorithms, we will still admit that the current generation does not know how to deal with essential things like truth, preferring instead clinging to professional jargons and superficial thinking. In general, people do not want to spend their time unless they gain practical benefits. They are busy studying, working, and self-developing so as not to fall behind others. They are preoccupied with managing their finances, difficulties of work, keeping up grades, and paying bills. They are also busy trying to take care of their health by exercising and taking various nutritional supplements and growing organic produce that are said to be good for the body. In addition, they have to participate in social media activities and stay current with their Facebook posting and YouTube account. Socializing with friends and participating in clubs is also essential. Our current lives are always too busy. Satan will take pleasure knowing that people these days consider their real lives to be extremely busy. The busyness of daily life has turned the act of deeply contemplating truth and falsehood into a luxury. Moreover, many emerging news and stories that people see and hear through YouTube and social media have made human minds extremely distracted and confused. As a result, many of us find it difficult to concentrate and stay focused. Our ability to seriously consider and evaluate what we are doing and the meaning behind what we are doing is quickly diminishing. Occasionally, opportunities arise to think about life, death, sin, and eternity, but because of our overly distracted and desensitized mind, these thoughts quickly fade away. It is like seeing the world through the compound eyes of an insect. We see too many things from too many different angles. As a result, we live our lives as if the most immediate sensory experience is the only reality. We don't even have a chance to think deeply about what reality is. People worry about their health. They believe that pondering what to eat and what good habits to cultivate. For instance, after a colonoscopy and removing a small polyp, they find it practical to worry about colon health, but they think contemplating about the sins we commit every day and the punishment that follows is not practical. They might trivialize these issues simply a conceptual idea. We know who was born before others, but do not know who would die before others. In other words, while there is an order to birth, there is no order to death. Yet, people ignore what comes after death. Even though they know that the flesh is real and the soul is real, they think that heaven and hell are not real. There are moments when atheists suddenly become believers. When something good happens, they adhere to their atheism, but when something bad happens, all of a sudden they become believers. Facing what appears to be an insurmountable obstacle looming over their lives, like a cancer or bankruptcy, they come to seek God or they blame God. Either way, they seem to acknowledge God's existence, whether consciously or unconsciously, but they don't think that God sent Jesus to earth is real, to overcome all of humanity's sin, 
to die and to resurrect for us. It is like covering the sky with their palm. I will read you a few excerpts from the first letter of Screwtape. Again, keep in mind that he is writing to his nephew Wormwood. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my twenty years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control, and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter suggestion that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line for when he said, "Quite, in fact, too much important to tackle at the end of a morning." The patient brightened up under considerable. And by the time I had added much better, come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. You begin to see the point. Thanks to processes which we set at work in them centuries ago, they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. Don't let him get away from that invaluable real life. In this book, C.S. Lewis depicts the devil's relentless effort to prevent people from hearing the gospel. When Jesus was preaching the truth, the devil constantly worked to prevent people from considering it by constricting them with the realm of the senses. If successful, people would be unable to comprehend anything beyond what is familiar and commonplace. In First Peter chapter five, verses eight to nine, the Bible says, "Be alert and of sober mind." Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Our enemy watches us, looking for an opportunity to attack. Therefore, we need to realize that we are under attack and be alert and of sober mind. For us as Christians, we should always keep the truth in mind. Truth is not merely an abstract concept of something that fits precisely with reality or fact. Or universally appropriate proposition, truth is not a concept. Truth is only found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus is not someone who merely speaks about the truth, but he is the truth himself. John fourteen six says, Jesus answered, "I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." We need to ask ourselves, what is the reality that I think of? What is the truth that I think of? Is what surrounds me just skillfully mixed things that are not truth but seem like truth, spread by evil thoughts in my mind? We will contemplate these and other similar issues in coming weeks. We now conclude our program for today's A Christian Who Read Books. I will see you next time.
ever felt that way And if I had to tell you the truth I'm afraid I'd have to say That after all I've done and failed to do I feel like less than I was meant to be And what if I could fix myself Maybe then I could get free I could try to be somebody else Who's much better off than me But I need to remember this That is when I'm at my weakest I can clearly see He made the lame walk and the dumb talk And he opened blinded eyes to see That the sun rises on his time Yet he knows how deep his desperate need And the world waits while his heart aches To realize the dream I wonder what life would be like If we let Jesus live through you Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Cavalry Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the evil spell. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's look at Acts chapter 18 and we're going to begin in verse 18. 
Acts 18, verse 18. Title the message, The Evil Spell. Never titled anything that way in all these years of teaching. The Evil Spell. Let's find out what it is. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Sancre, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. So he left uh, Corinth, he'd been there quite a while, and now he is parting, as it says, and he's gone with Priscilla and Aquila, and then at Sancre, it says he cut his hair. He cut it. The vow had not been complete. What is cutting your hair for a vow all about, right? There is a Jewish thing where if you are completely thankful to God for something, that it's called a Nazarite vow. The Old Testament talks about it. You would shave your head to begin with, and then you would let your hair grow until the point that you have decided is long enough to thank God. So if you wanted to thank God for three months for what he's done for you and live in that Thanksgiving, you'd shave your head and then the three months of hair would grow. Or maybe if you decided two years, two years of hair, then you would go to the temple and you would have your hair cut there. And uh, that hair then would be offered on the Altar as a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of your thanksgiving and devotion to God. And so this is apparently what Paul was doing. He had taken a vow, and he did it in a typical Jewish way. Some people you know, say, oh, Paul goes back to Judaism. Well, Paul was a Jew, for goodness sake, right, gang? He's a Jew. And so this is a Jewish, this is the best way to, I think it's kind of cool. I'm kind of starting on my, my vow. Some of you have already made it, I see. You're just waiting for, uh, for it to grow so you can offer it in the temple. So this is what he was doing. He was thankful, most likely, for the protection that God had given him through all of this trouble, especially maybe in Corinth, as he's coming out of Corinth. Verse 19, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. You know, the people in Ephesus, now, we're going to have a letter written to the people, the saints in Ephesus, and it's called the book of Ephesians, right? And so when we come to uh, Paul camping in Ephesus in the book of Acts, don't be surprised if we go to the book of Ephesians and, and put these things together. I think that's a good way to study, don't you? Kind of put everything together, dovetail things as they should be done. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay longer, he declined. He didn't want to because he wanted to get to Jerusalem and fulfill his vow. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he said, sell from Ephesus. Now, a lot of times you hear people, well, you know, if God wills, I'll do it. You know, the Lord willing, the Lord willing. I say it. Some people say it. They don't think about what they're saying. But I really mean when people say, well, I'll see you next week. And I often say, well, yeah, I'll see you too, the Lord willing. 
And it's not, I'm just realizing that every minute is a gift from God, and I might not be here tomorrow. Uh, you might not be here tomorrow. So it's all a matter of the will of God, and we're recognizing that our time is in His hand, right? So you don't have to say the Lord willing, but kind of think about it. Whenever we make our plans, maybe the Lord laughs at them sometimes. You think? He says, What? No, that's not what's going to happen at all. Look at verses 22 and 23. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, look at this. He went through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now you're saying, well, what? why are you saying, now look at that? What's the important thing here? Where does he go? The region of Galatia and Phrygia. This is a whole region. Now, it says Paul went to this region of Galatia. Why? It says why? To strengthen all the disciples. Well, I'm thinking, why did they need strengthening? I mean, you could think, well, yeah, we always need strengthening. But was there something more happening? And I discovered that when Paul was in that area, he wrote the book of Galatians, which made me decide we ought to go to the book of Galatians. So let's do that, okay? To the right, the book of Galatians. This is probably what Paul was going around strengthening people with. This was most likely the message. Now remember, they didn't have media. In the old days, it was radio or cassette tapes. You know, you can share messages and now YouTube and all. They didn't have that. So really, you had to say the same thing every place you went, or it had to be written down and then sent. And so I believe that this is probably what he shared with those churches to strengthen those churches. I believe that the letter of Galatians is that message that we're sharing to strengthen the churches. And thank goodness we have this. But it also tells us why they needed strengthening, and I believe they needed strengthening because Jewish Christian, I'm going to say quote-unquote, Christian legalists were spreading false doctrines among the churches. And that kind of teaching weakens Christians. He needed to strengthen them. Why? Because they were being made weak by false doctrine, especially the doctrine of the Judaizers. We've talked about them, right? These were Jews, Christians, I don't know now. But they were... Jews who said, well, in order to be saved, you needed to become Jewish first. So if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, in order to be saved, you needed to become a Jew. Well, how do you do that? Well, you had to go through rituals in order to be accepted into the Jewish family. And then you could, the message of Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, would be uh, a message for you. Unless you did that, you couldn't be saved. So Paul, remember in Acts 15, there was this Jerusalem council, and this accusation was brought up that Paul was telling the Gentiles they didn't have to become Jews first 
in order to be saved. And this whole issue came to the church in Jerusalem, the mothership, so to speak. And all the decision there by all the apostles was, "Mm, the Judaizers are wrong. All right? You don't have to become a Jew. In fact, you Gentiles come to Christ just the way you are. Just be careful to abstain from that, that, that. It's what they said. That, and beyond that, that's it. So that was settled, but apparently the news had, like I said, news traveled very slowly, and or new churches began, and they didn't hear about the, the Acts 15 council, or they're all confused. You know how it is for somebody to to really muddy up the truth. So this was happening, and they were coming to the churches. And these are churches Paul planted, and they're coming into those churches, and they were disturbing the the Gentile believers. And Paul was furious. I don't blame him. Man, I've planted churches. This is not our only church. We planted several churches, and you know what? When somebody comes in to undo the work of God, it makes me furious. And it's good. Because part of what you are is you're a shepherd. What do they do? They feed, they lead, they guard, they guide God's flock. And so Paul said, this has to be nipped in the bud because legalism weakens the soul. Paul had no patience. The churches he had planted by teaching the gospel of grace were being swayed by these false teachers. They were departing from the truth of the gospel under the influence of these false teachers. So Paul went to the Galatian region to strengthen these churches and remind them of the gospel that saved them. So, book of Galatians. 972 in these lunar Bibles. It was most likely the written version, like I said, of what he was sharing. There was a rumor, a lie being circulated that Paul had changed the gospel message he had been teaching. See, this is the way people work. They said, well, you know, since Paul came here and shared the gospel with you, well, there's a little bit of a tweak. He's teaching a little bit differently now. And so these churches are believing them. Most likely the lie was started by the Judaizers to validate their false teachings. Chapter 5, verse 11 makes this clear. Chapter 5, verse 11, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it from the message. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision, that's, that was the right that made you a Jew, and they're saying you had to go through that in order to be saved. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision as I did in those pre-Damascus Road days, that is absurd. Why would I still then be persecuted? He goes on, if I were preaching that old message, no one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. So the rumor is, I've changed my message. He said, no way, no way. So Paul begins this letter to address this rumor and rebuke them for believing false teachers. He begins his letter with a short introduction, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. 
So Paul is beginning with this great statement of, do you know who I am? Or this is who I am, not to boast, but to establish his authority. All right? Very important for the correction he's going to give. They have got to believe and understand he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. This is a typical beginning. This is the introduction to a letter. They call it a salutation, the intro to a letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you could just teach and soak in verses 3 through 5. This is a, a typical beginning of a letter. Typical, there was a salutation, introduction. Then you look at chapter, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Every other letter he writes to the churches, there is some, you know, the intro and then, man, I thank God in my heart for you, or I've heard of how you are doing and it blesses me. There's something like that here. Hello, boom, he drops a hammer. Here at the very beginning, he speaks very abruptly. Later on in the letter, he's going to say, he's, he's going to talk about how, you know, he's sorry that his tone is kind of rough. Chapter 4, verse 20, I wish I could present you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You see that in chapter 4, verse 20? So you have to understand, Paul's tone is not, I'm really astonished that you're so quickly leaving the gospel. No. He is upset. Okay, he's upset. And it's good to be upset when people are being led astray. You okay with that, you guys? It's good. It's okay. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Seems like everybody always wants something new, you know? Let's add something to it. Let's subtract something. Let's make a different gospel. Verses 7 through 9. Not there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to push it all out of, of place. But even, look, I'm telling you, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. That's what anathema, the word is a curse, is anathema. It means let him be eternally cursed, damned. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you see, you received, let him be damned. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. So again, he's strengthening the churches. 
This is probably, think of a recording of what he was saying. He had to go to one church after another. And now this is his general, you know, let's just write this letter so everybody reads it. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Oh, foolish Galatians. He calls them fools twice, verse 3 or verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? When we were saved, we were saved by grace. The Holy Spirit came into us the minute we were saved. Was it because of our works? No. Then in verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? By your righteous deeds, you think you're going to be accepted by God? You fools. <laughs> I guess you can only talk to your kids this way. Or he's addressing those false teachers. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Oh, foolish Galatians, the New Living Translation says, who has cast an evil spell on you? What is the evil spell of the New Testament? A different gospel. Specifically, a gospel of works that you somehow have to work your way into God's approval, work your way, do something into being accepted by God. I was once under that evil spell. Leslie was once under that evil spell. We thought that we were saved. I mean, people might tell you, oh, no, you're saved by grace. But really, down in your heart, you're never told it's not by good things you do. Are you under the evil spell, maybe? I mean, it sounds horrible, I know. But who has bewitched you? Who has? For us, somebody had. We were taught by wrong teachers. I know who bewitched us. Who has bewitched you? That you would think that, yes, you were saved by grace, but now you're kept by your works. See, that's where a lot of Christians, I had a better excuse than you do. A lot of Christians, that sounded, it didn't come out right. It didn't come out right. What I'm trying to say is probably that's the most common problem we have among ourselves. That's the way I wanted to say it. It didn't come out right. The most common problem we have with the evil spell is we believe we're saved by grace through faith, but then we kind of have the feeling that we need to be kept by our works, to be kept saved. That is, Jesus paid the down payment on our salvation. And we now pay the monthly payments. And at the very end, we get the house. It's so common. That's what I want to say. It's so common. And maybe you've slipped into, you know, the evil spell. Maybe it didn't hit, you know, it doesn't, but it comes on us. We get this thought that, no, it's not that way. Jesus didn't just pay the down payment on the house. Jesus paid the whole house, right? Yeah, but there's the monthly utilities. Well, yeah, you just need to keep the monthly. No, he's paying the utilities too. Well, what am I going to get my groceries? Everything you have comes from Jesus. 
You mean it's all Jesus? Kind of. Yes, it's all Jesus, isn't it? It's not me. It's not you. And I've said it begin, I'll say it one more time. We cannot have a relationship with God on the basis of works. Why? God refuses. God wants to have a relationship with us, but he will never have, he refuses. He says, you know, I'm not even in that. The only way I'll have a relationship with you is by Jesus dying for your sins, taking my, your place on the cross, your sins forgiven, you justified. That's the only way I'll have a relationship with you. No other way. Your problem is you might think there's another way, but I'm not into that. So there's his way. That's it. So you can choose. Say, well, it's just too easy. Yes, that's what I want to hear. When you think it's too easy or too good to be true, you're beginning to understand. You're beginning. The spell is being lifted. Yeah, but what if, what if I'm living a lousy life? Okay, that's another topic. What if I'm sinning all the time? That's another topic. In fact, he's going to address this. Look, look, he addresses it as he's talking to these guys. Because it's too good to be true. And look at chapter 5 of Galatians, 5 verse 1. He says, for freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, maybe you're not in, in a religion or a church where you were saved by grace, yes, and then now later on people begin to add things on, and pretty soon you've got that yoke of slavery back on. He says, no, don't ever stand firm. Don't let anything pull you out of understanding your right standing with God. And he says, look, and the problem there was doing a good work, the good work of becoming a Jew first. Look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. If you're going to serve God on the basis of works, then you better be ready to keep all God's commandments perfectly. You ready for that? No. Okay, then get out of that. Get out of that. Paul is so upset about this that somebody would pull people away from the grace of God and tell them they had to do something in order to be. He is so mad. In this case, it was circumcision, you know, the Jewish right to become a Jew. He was so mad about that that he says, you know, I wish in the process that they would just cut themselves off. What? I'm not kidding. Look, he says, verse 6, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You're in this race, but now who's turned you the wrong direction? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, that you're going to turn around, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In the process of circumcision, that they would slip. 
That's what he says. You say it's kind of crude. Mm, yeah, kind of. But this is, <laughs> this is how upset he is about people being led astray from the gospel and coming under that evil spell. Is this too crude for me to teach next service? Because I won't, you know. I don't have to take this recording, you know. <laughs> Online you're listening, but we don't have to play this again. You know what I'm saying? It's okay? I mean, it's clear. It's in the Greek. <laughs> he was, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, this is where I was heading. If the gospel seems too good to be true, if it seems like, well, you're telling me I can do anything I want, if it sounds that way, you're there. You're there. But, but what? Get your butt out of it, okay? Not the butts. Not the butt. But what if I do this? But what if I do that? Get all the butts out of it and just listen. It's nothing but grace. What about living a good life? Okay. Verse 13, you're called to freedom. Brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay, you've been called. You're saved by grace plus nothing. Now, don't use the freedom that you have to let the flesh go wild. Okay? Now, how are we going to control the flesh? Well, he talks about it in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are in the flesh are not opposed, are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What are the works of the flesh? Verse 19. Sexual morality, impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Oh, wow, the list goes on. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But he says, you know the problem you're going to have, those of you who are saved by grace through faith plus nothing, you're going to have a struggle inside with the flesh Versus the spirit. You're going to have a tug of war going inside your life. Look, he said it. He said in verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, right? Isn't there something in you that wants to do something that's wrong? Isn't there something, let's say, in you that responds to certain temptations? Who has that experience? Thank you. We all raise our hands. Okay, we all do. He says, so... The works of the flesh, he says, so the desires of flesh are against the spirit. Desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposing each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there is this tug of war going on inside of us. Ever feel that? Yes. And the more you resist temptation, the stronger the tug of war is going to be. I mean, if you just give in immediately, you're not going to feel a lot of tug of war, right? But when you stand, and the stronger you stand, more and more you feel this struggle, this tension. So what's going to give you the victory? He says, well, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Some think it's simply saying that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the rest are just expressions of love. Joy is an expression of love. Peace is an expression of love. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. They're all expressions of love. And those who belong, verse 24, to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Don't you like that? Now, I know this isn't how it's talking, but you know how people tell you to keep in step with the rhythm, right? You know, when the bass line is playing in one of these worship songs, this is totally, I don't think what, what this really means, but I'm thinking... And your foot might tap, right? But if you try to tap out of rhythm, it's weird. He says, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's walk with the Spirit. What a great way to describe what our Christian walk should be like. But he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You have heard, often we talk about it, you know, on Good Friday or times like that, about what crucifixion was like. How many of you have heard descriptions of crucifixion? Horrible way to die, right? Horrible. And what Jesus experienced on the cross is unbelievable. One of the worst ways to die. It's a long, slow agonizing process. It doesn't happen, you're crucified and dead. It can go on for days and days and days. The pain is horrible as the nails have gone through the nerves and the wrists and the ankles, and it's horrible. The thirst. He says, those, look, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You know, crucifying the flesh can be a very painful experience, and it's not a one-time deal game, right? The evil spell binds you to performance and to what you think is a performance relationship with God, though God won't have that. You just think you have one. The evil spell leads to guilt and fear and shame because you're serving God In order to be saved, and you're never sure you are saved, and when you sin, your guilt pushes you far away from God, and shames, it sucks the joy out of your service. The evil spell actually leads you to think that God is indebted to you. Because if I live good enough, then God will give me eternal life. God's not paying you anything, ever. The evil spell is wicked, isn't it? So Paul writes this letter, and he's going out to the area of Galatia and Phrygia to strengthen the disciples because they need to hear this word. I need to hear it. How about you guys? Thank you, Paul, that I can hear what you are strengthening them with because it strengthens me.
following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Incline your heart for understanding. For if you cry for discernment, that's the ability to have discretion, to make right judgments in the Lord. Lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, if you search for her as hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. you got a lot of babies in church who are rebellious and in sin and they can't receive the word because their hearts aren't right. And so evil pastors lower it down rather than addressing the sin so that they would be right with the Lord and have a right desire for the word of God. He says, then you'll discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. But yet, if you're a believer and you're still having trouble, just only wanting baby truths and not responding, maybe something's wrong. Maybe something's wrong. Maybe you were stillborn. Maybe you weren't born again. Or maybe you are starving. Hebrews chapter 5, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. The apostle writing to the Hebrews reproves these believers because Time sufficient has gone by for them to know the Word of God and be able to discern it. And I tell you, there's nothing worse than talking to somebody. How long have you been a Christian? 69 years or 33 years or whatever. And they don't even see Christ rightly in their daily walk because they're dulled down by their own sin. They can't discern between good and evil, even in the church. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. He's talking about Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to give the context to Hebrews, but he says concerning him. He says, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. Something's wrong. Your ears are hardened. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. He's speaking to all the believers there. You have again need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. That's the word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching of Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now, you never leave it from leaving it. You just build upon it, basically. But I build upon it every day. So the Thessalonians, they left the elementary teachings. Paul, in a very short time, was sharing deep truth with the Thessalonians, and he expected them to understand it. And in Second Thessalonians, he's expecting to hold them to that truth because they're true believers, and they're able to obey by the power of Christ. So how can we apply this to our lives? Well, the Apostle Paul had a great concern for the growth and spiritual well-being of the church, which reveals that God has the same concern. And so God has a concern for us. He has a concern for our growth. He has a concern that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's gracious and he's kind. And with anything and every sin and every situation that's wrong or bad, all we need to do is humble ourselves and just admit it. And we're set free. We're set free. We're forgiven. Confess your sin, he's faithful to forgive you. 
You've been a believer for a long time and you're still a baby Christian. Something's really wrong. Examine your heart. Examine your heart. And then start growing again. And grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. You see, because if you truly repent, a worldly sorrow brings about death. And you see people who realize they're sitting in worldly sorrow. But a godly sorrow leads to repentance without regret. Praise the Lord. He's revealed my sin. I'm going to trust him and move forward. What a great God I have. Okay, so with that in mind, what do we really need? Let's begin our study of Second Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, we have the same greeting we have as in 1 Thessalonians, which leads me to believe and others, especially that the three are together, that this is really close to the time the first book was written. He's heard some disturbing news, and he has to write them back right away. He's heard some disturbing news. And as I said, it has to have happened during that 18-month time in Corinth. And it has to have happened while Paul, Samantha, and Timothy were still together, because Paul's going to go off on his own after Corinth. So it had to happen there. So we have the exact same greeting, and then we have the author identified, Paul, and this is the Apostle Paul. And he mentions Sophanus and Timothy, as we saw. Now, is it all three that are writing this letter, or is it just one? It's the Apostle Paul. He's just, as we'll see, humble and, and talking about his companions in Christ who are ministering also. Because in the end of Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is the distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. He's not saying, I, Paul, Silas, and Timothy write this letter to you. He's writing it to them, but he is with Silas, Silvanus, as we'll see, same thing, Silas, as we'll see, and Timothy. So then notice, first of all, from this greeting, we can see that Paul was humble. He doesn't say, I, Paul, the first pope, right? He doesn't say, I, Paul, the elder of all elders. I, Paul, the senior pastor of the Thessalonian church. He doesn't say any of that. He says, Paul. Now, there are times in Scripture where the Apostle Paul has to share his authority in Christ. And there are times when those who are called to be servant leaders must do that. He will say in some other letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Not by Paul's will, but by Jesus Christ's will. And he needs to say that because an apostle has spiritual authority over the church. Apostle is foundational to build the foundation, the foundation of the apostle and prophets. But here, there was no friction between the Thessalonians and Paul. They accepted his authority. They accepted the fact that God was bringing his word through Paul. They accepted it as the word of God, not as the word of men. You see, so he doesn't need to say the apostle Paul. But you also see his humility here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church. He doesn't elevate himself. He's humble. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you're, you know, just learning where things are, just listen and go come back to it later. So I don't want you to spend the whole time trying to find it and not hearing what I'm saying. But you'll learn eventually or get the tabs to put in your Bibles. Whatever you're interested in, you're going to spend time on it, by the way. Believe me, if you've got interest in your life, you spend time on it. If you're interested in the Lord, you're going to spend time in his word. So we see here in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. Notice what he says. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the way, that's the chief sin. Paul called himself the chief of sinners because he persecuted the church. 
He's persecuting Jesus. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he says, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored all the more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It's Paul, not the great Paul. It's Paul, and Christ is working through Paul. And so he shares it in a very humble way. What about Galatians chapter 6? I'll just read this for you, verses 2 and 3. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know, if God has gifted you and he's blessing people through you, you're nothing still. It's God doing it. When you serve the Lord and you bless the body of Christ in love, it is God doing it. If you think you are something when you are nothing, you deceive yourself. It's all by grace. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4? I'll read this for you. For one says to me, I am a Paul, another of Apollos. Are you not mere men? Who then is Apollos? And Apollos was a good guy too, but who then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Paul says, and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Therefore, the one who plants and waters is nothing, right? Paul was humble. And we see his humility even in the greeting. And then notice, you know, you see it. I mean, you see some Bible teachers, doctor so-and-so, doctor this, there's all kinds of things and this and that. You know, whatever, you know. The reality is, Paul was humble. Now notice his companions. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. First of all, we see Silvanus is still with him. This is the Silvanus, and he is the Silas of Acts. You see, Silas was probably his Aramaic name, and Silvanus was his Roman or Gentile name. And so in Acts 15, we actually learn a lot about Silas. In verse 22 of Acts 15, we see that he was one of the leading men among the brethren. In Acts 15.32, we see him, Judas and Silas, also being prophets, it says among themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren. I love this passage with a lengthy message. The reality is he was also a prophet. He shared the word of God, Silas or Savannah. In chapter 15, verse 40, we see that after Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement about John Mark, who had failed and deserted them, Paul chose Silas to accompany him on what we call his second missionary journey. Later, we see Silas became a companion and an aide to Peter. Silas is a good guy. In 1 Peter 5.12, Peter calls him a faithful brother. That's wonderful, and that's important. So then Silas was a good guy. Silvanus, Silas, good guy in the Lord. A proven faithful brother. Could God say that of you? Maybe you're new in the faith. Be faithful in Christ. Let him be faithful through you. Trust in him. Abide in him. If Christ is everything and he does everything through you, then you will be a faithful brother over time. But those of us who've been saved for a long time, would the Lord call you faithful? A faithful brother or sister? It's a lot of unfaithful people. Very few faithful, but there are. And praise the Lord because they're a blessing and give God glory with what they do. So then we have Silas, who was a good guy. And then notice we have Timothy. Paul, Silvanus, I keep saying Silas, but it's the same guy, Silvanus and Timothy. Now we have much in the word about Timothy. And scripture reveals that he was a native of either Lystra or Derby. And those are towns in the province of Galatia. His mother was a Jew by the name of Eunice. His grandmother, Lois, his father was a Greek. 
He had not been circumcised until he had journeyed with Paul, and that was an indication he was probably raised and educated in the Greek culture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see that he learned the truth concerning salvation from the Scriptures through his mother and grandmother. Those are good ladies. Teach the Word of God to the kids. And that he knew the Scriptures from childhood which were able to give him the knowledge of the truth which leads to faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's take a look at that for a second. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy is all about bad guys here, they do this. Timothy, you stay in the Word. Bad guys here, they do this. Timothy, you stay in the Word. Bad guys here, they do this. Timothy, you stay in the Word. That's what it is. Just an alternate of all those things throughout. 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. Hey, just go to church these days. Evil men and impostors all over the place. Just watch TV about church stuff. See it? Deceiving and being deceived. You, remember, bad guys, but you, Timothy. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from where you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God, he says. Timothy had a wonderful grandmother and a wonderful mother who shared the Word of God with him. And he came to faith. Now, it seems like that he probably came to faith when he was young. And by the time we see him come on the scene in Acts 16, he had become a proven young man, a disciple, proven young disciple. Acts 16, and when he came to Derby, that's speaking of Paul and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. That's great. Would God's word say that to you? Who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he, speaking of Timothy, well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. He had a good reputation in Christ. And Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So he took Timothy. He's a good guy. Now, I don't think we understand how much Paul cared for Timothy and how close they were in Christ. Paul calls him a man of God. He calls him a true child of the faith, beloved son in the Lord, his brother, his co-worker, his fellow servant, his fellow slave. He was with Paul in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. He's associated with Paul in some of his epistles, such as 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, and as we see here in First and 2 Thessalonians. And we know that his letters, when Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, and then we have a second letter, which was Paul's last letter to Timothy, We know he was of great use because he was willing to do whatever Paul, who was led by the Lord, asked him to do. He was willing to do whatever the Lord would have him do. And we see that willingness. Remember in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, he sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. In Philippians chapter 2, we find out something very interesting about Timothy. You could turn there, Philippians 2. Paul says in verse 19, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged and learn of your condition. Listen to this. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know of his proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy was a good guy. So how can we apply this? Obviously, Paul was humble. 
as God called him to be an apostle, he was humble. Secondly, the apostle Paul took his own advice about who he hung around with. He took his own advice. The apostle Paul hung around with those who were seeking Christ. Indeed, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, you can remember that, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. So who do you hang with? I'm not saying we don't have unbelievers as acquaintances, unbelieving family acquaintances, but we don't hang with them. Who are your buddies? Who are your close, intimate friends? 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't deceive yourself thinking that you're going to win them over by hanging out with them. It doesn't work that way. The nice apple doesn't win over the rotten apple. The rotten apple wins over the nice apple in the bag, okay? Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13.20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And we're to pursue those things of Christ with those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. They're not perverted in how they relate to Jesus. It's a pure heart. So then what do we really need? Well, we need to learn from Paul's humble example. We need to see how he lived his life and look at that pattern and mimic that as we see in Scripture. But notice now as we get into the greeting, we need to remember our position in Christ. Back to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, we have a physical description, the church of the Thessalonians. He doesn't say the church in Thessalonica because that's not what his point is. There are a lot of churches in different cities, but this is the church of God. It's God's church. The term church means called out ones, called out of darkness into light through Jesus Christ. And that called out group of believers is there in Thessalonica. It has Thessalonians in it. The church consisting of Thessalonian believers. The called out ones, the body of Christ. And then notice we have a spiritual description. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's God's church, church of God. You can say God's church. And this church of believers is in the Greek preposition, in, it's spatial in relationships, translated in for us, it's spatial. In God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in your English you have a the there, but in Greek there's no definite article, because the definite article is a little bit different in Greek. With no definite article, what that does is speak of the quality of what's being spoken of. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, they are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that draws our attention to their relationship with the loving and caring Father in heaven. You need to know that when you're suffering. You're in a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. We know that He loves us so greatly that we're children of God. Love us so much that He sent His Son for us.
are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.